When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from iLikeYou.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at iLikeYou.com. Now, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Well, things are loosening up slowly. We are going to now officially be able to have 25 people indoors and 50 people outdoors. So, are you going to be racing out of your front door right away? Who knows? And also there'll be more uh, bigger stores opening up too as well. So it should be a happy time for us, right? But uh, there are things that are still hanging in the air. Fear, anger, and now racism. Our Asian community, especially the Chinese community, have been hit hard. And there is now a program out started by the Immigration Partnership Winnipeg. And it's Manitobans, COVID-19 doesn't discriminate, nor should you. And we're going to have the director and another member of this organization on to talk about this growing, growing concern. We'll also have a mental health advocate and an appointed citizen to the Human Rights Committee for the City of Winnipeg and a University of Manitoba history prof that specializes in Chinese history. So sit back, you're going to hear and be involved in a very, very, I think, powerful and moving conversation. So let's welcome everybody to the Hue virtual chat. Once again, hi, hello, hi everybody. Wow, hi honey. Hi, and there's Melinda. Yes, look at everybody's here. Hi Rana. Hi, how are you? Hi, good, good. Susie, Charlotte, good to have hi. you back. Kristen, Rana, Allie, Tina. All right, so we can open up the mics, I guess, for everybody. Um, so I'm gonna show you a poster, ladies, and uh, it's a campaign that's been started, and we're gonna start about uh, learning more about the campaign and also from the people representing uh, the Immigration Partnership Winnipeg, and a very, very unique organization. So it's called COVID-19 Doesn't Discriminate nor should you. And just the faces on the poster say everything. And it's kind of unfortunate. No, it is very unfortunate that a campaign like this needs to be had. So I'm going to open it up with our special guests here today. Um, Hania Tan and Jessica Prasnik. Is Hani here? There he is. I am. I am trying to find my way through the Zoom thing here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm here. Oh, great. And honey, I have to let you know that 
Uh, I hope you don't feel kind of, you know, overcrowded here, but this is an all-female talk show, but we did make an exception just to have you on. I love my mother, and a world without females or women is not a world that we live in. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to start with you, honey. If you can tell us more about your organization, along with Jessica, and and this campaign that you started, and more importantly, why? Well, I can simply say the I can answer the why. I'll leave the details for Jessica to cover. Um, with respect to the why is our community is one body. That's how we view it. That's how we look at it. Um, if it's one limb got hurt, the rest will echo that pain. And mm-hmm. for that purpose and for that reason, we would not be able to create an inclusive um, a cohesive society, which is, by the way, our mandate to create as a project. And by project, I mean we're a federally funded project to create that inclusive, just uh, welcoming community. And so if it's one part, one segment is hurting or being targeted or being singled out, I think the whole entire community building process would be interrupted. And derailed from the path of healthy integration, which is our objective. And so for that reason, when we observed and noticed and also learned from some of our community members that there are members from our, um, the Asian community members coming to us and telling us that there are some incidents of racism and discrimination coming towards them and as a result of COVID-19, we, I did not have time to waste and we did not have time to uh, to waste in terms of uh, planning and executing our campaign. So we involve them, we engage them, and we engage the rest of the uh, stakeholders and partners, and we created this campaign to respond to discriminatory and, and racist behaviors that come in, unfortunately, from, uh, I would say, a few individuals in our society so that's the, with respect to the large why. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have other little whys that we can answer as we can go on. Yes. Okay, so Jessica, tell us more then about the campaign. How, you know, what is its mandate? Or, you know, he addressed why, but what are some of the components within that? Yeah, so thank you so much. Um, the objectives of our campaign we have, are threefold. So the first really is to condemn the association of COVID-19 with any racial or ethnic group and kind of bring awareness of the increasing acts of racism and discrimination that have been taking place as related to COVID-19. The second objective is to create resources and information and share information for victims and witnesses of uh, acts of racism and discrimination. And the third is to really highlight that many of those folks who are getting discriminated against actually are on the front lines and essential workers in Manitoba's response to COVID-19. So in order to kind of meet these objectives, our campaign is evolving and creating new um, types of initiatives, but uh, we have four that we're kind of focusing on at the beginning stages. And the first is our poster campaign. So you've all seen the poster. Um, We have French and English versions, and we're trying to share that poster really widely through businesses and organizations in Manitoba. We sent some off to Brandon, Nipawa, Porsche La Prairie, they're getting around the city. So trying to um, get those posters spread widely. We're creating some resources and tools on how to respond to acts of racism and also hate crimes. 
um, and those will be translated into a few different languages. The next is we have a hashtag essential in Manitoba campaign where we're trying to highlight um, many newcomers and immigrants who are working in um, essential services in Manitoba. And we're, plan we're starting to do some planning around some events for our campaign. So we'll have a virtual ethics cafe that'll be an open public discussion um, to talk about COVID-19 and racism. We're also hoping to have a training webinar for ethnic cultural leaders and support workers who are getting questions and hearing about incidents of uh, racism and discrimination from their community members. So that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. Well, no, it's a, it's certainly, and just to let you know, um, Hani and uh, Jessica, we share this program too with Brandon. So it gets sent out to all their satellite communities. So hopefully, you know, we'll reach those small town communities, which are ones where there are real problems, right? Because everybody knows everybody. And so I'm gonna now introduce Tina Chen. Thank you so much, Tina, for joining. She's a professor at the University of Manitoba and she specializes in Chinese history. Now, Tina, and you're also on the board of directors for the uh, Chinese Cultural Community and Cultural Center. So tell us what's really happening in the Chinese community here locally. Well, you know, I think the Chinese community um, often experiences moments like this um, through the longer history of the way that racism has operated in Canada and internationally. And there's a number of dynamics that are coming into play at the current moment. Um, at the beginning of the COVID outbreaks, I think much felt quite familiar to the Chinese community, both in Manitoba, but across Canada, in terms of the way that SARS was um, experienced it, and the way that there became fears around just places that were occupied by Chinese people and the types of racism and the kind of microaggressions that happen in everyday life, whether it's whether people don't want to stand close to you in the grocery store. Um, and part of the issues that I think are happening currently with COVID is that it, particularly in Manitoba, for a moment in kind of the midst of the rapid response, it seemed like these incidents of racism were becoming less pronounced as everybody, all businesses were being equally affected, everyone was moving away from them. But we are hearing um, in our community as well as, you know, across the country, that the kinds of associations that have been made, you know, unfortunately through public figures, whether, you know, they're global leaders or whether they're, um, you know, social media presence or they're part of, you know, their pop stars or whatever else, these the associations and kind of the easy way that people have come to call something the Chinese disease or the Wuhan disease, um, the way that Winnipeg has become associated with conspiracy theories around the origins of COVID-19, all of these have come to play to kind of um, create a targeted atmosphere. And I think in this way, what we see is the kinds of, um, the differences that already exist in terms of um, racial experiences of this city and province. And, you know, I am hearing as well that just the way that it, you know, being a racialized person in the community, um, comes to bear in everyday experiences. And that what this also leads to is a lot of misunderstanding. Um, I'm sure many of you also read the story in um, out of BC, British Columbia seems to be one place where there's a lot more instances, but you know, people's public conflation of indigenous and Asian and the targeting, the open targeting of both communities as kinds of um, an assumption and kind of way of presenting diseased bodies, a fear of bodies. And I think these are some of the issues, you know, we're concerned about both the treatment of Asians in the community, but also the broader way that the um, fears have come to manifest themselves with a kind of easy acceptance that expressing racism in the everyday might be okay. Wow. 
uh, and you're right, I did uh, see some incidences in, in BC. So I'm going to ask, before I go further, because I just have one question, and maybe Jessica, you can address this. So I felt so strongly when I saw this one incident where this lady just turned around and started screaming at this poor, innocent man standing in line as a public citizen. And someone did step in, but she received no help. And and I guess maybe just before, like, how how do we address this? And then me too, as a visible minority, I'm Japanese Canadian, but you know, I, I, I would be, I would want to step in, but what is the protocol? Yeah. So it's really each um, instance is, is different because it depends on how safe people feel if it's going to escalate to more violence. Um, so I think depending on the situation, so if it's, if it's violent, you have to make sure you're getting out of that situation um, and protect yourself. Um, but some of the more, if those, those comments, if you see like online comments, um, the misassociation of COVID-19 with a particular community, um, there's ways to you identify, then ask. So um, if you've identified, there's this discriminatory comment happening, and then asking, um, why do you say that? Like, why, why are you making that association because sometimes people have these biases that they need to be able to check their own biases so by asking about it um, that can you know help them through that process um, and then make giving straight facts so you know the, the basic one is just COVID-19 doesn't see a race or an ethnicity it's anybody can get COVID-19 um, and also um, yeah providing that that type of accurate information can be really helpful. And another tip as like, a, um, and you can do this both as somebody who's, who's experiencing it or as a witness to it, um, as a bystander. I'm also making sure if you're a bystander to like protect that person. Um, so as somebody who is not, I, doesn't identify as having experienced this myself, if I can step in and, you know, do that questioning and do that um, providing of accurate information. That's like another tool that we can use um, to be able to kind of stop this type of uh, discriminatory actions. Um, and, and I think it's too important that when we do see people standing up and questioning and providing accurate information that we, we thank them and we re-say the message that they're saying to show that there is support for people standing up against these these type of incidents. Yeah. And Jessica, can I just ask or, or say something as well? Um, uh, so when, when these incidents of, you know, verbal violence or racism or anything like that happens, you are usually in such shock that it's happening. If it's happening to you, especially, you are, you are terrified. And if you have your children with you or, you know, your parents or somebody um, vulnerable, you are even more scared to put them in danger as well. So one of the things that I think is really helpful is that you're not going to change a bigot's mind in the middle of Superstore, but what you can do is to stand in front of the person who's being verbally assaulted or whatever and create a protective layer around that person. You don't even have to listen, you don't have to respond to whatever that person is saying. You simply form a barrier around that person and give that person the physical comfort of having someone beside them who is saying to them, it's okay, I will walk with you out of this store, I will take you to somewhere safe, do you have somewhere to go? All of those things, because 
the reality is, is that we don't know how these things can escalate. And I hesitate to put myself, especially, or my children, if I'm with them, in danger. And that's why some people don't step forward sometimes is because they think, well, I'm going to get hurt too. So instead of confronting, sometimes it's just diffusing and taking that person out of the situation while they are still in shock, but saying, I'm going to help you. We can walk out of here together, you know? And I think if more people did that, that might be a more um, helpful way for us to not necessarily put ourselves in harm's way, but still protect the person who's being attacked. Oh, that's great. Totally. Yes, definitely. Um, Melinda. Hi. <laughs> We're lots to think about today. Well, thanks for joining us and thank you for introducing us to Tina. This is uh, wonderful. Uh, but you did mention that you had a you had a story to share about a friend of yours. Well, I mean, it's not my story to share, but I've heard from many friends um, that have experienced this. And we like to think that, you know, Manitoba is known as, or even Canada is known as such a multicultural place where we are we know we are united but there is racism out there and um i've had a friend who was verbally assaulted on the street saying go back to china i had another friend who um he is not um a visible minority however his he was just noticing some racism in their school in the south end of winnipeg where Parents were talking, oh, should we not hang out with, um, you know, children of, you know, like he, he was appalled and he, you know, was saying, you know, I can't believe there's that kind of conversation. And this was earlier when it was first around Chinese New Year, because I guess some people had come back from China. So, I mean, it's just, there's, it's happening around the city. Um, I mean, it's not making the news, which is because it's really happening in everyday life. And I know I've discussed this in the past, and I don't want to get into it here, but as someone who has anxiety, this is making me, as well as a lot of other people, a little bit more, I don't know, it's perpetuating our social anxiety, where, you know, every once in a while when I do walk out, I am a little afraid what are people thinking am I going to be verbally assaulted and then I start worrying about my parents and my grandmother well my grandmother doesn't leave the house but I mean and my my sisters my family my nephews I mean it's it adds that's an extra layer of anxiety so it is happening and I I'm really appreciative of this campaign that's going on and I'm very appreciative of everyone here who is talking about it and Tina has really been the Chinese community spokesperson on this because she's very well versed on this and um, yeah I mean I, I really don't have much more to add than to say it is happening in everyday lives and I don't know if it's happening in Rana's community, in Nanette's community. I know that in the Filipino community, Susie can tell us that- Melinda, let's be real. They can never tell us apart anyway. So of course it's <laughs> happening to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I, I'd be interested in hearing if anyone else has experienced it and what can I do as someone who's already afraid to go out in confronting the real world, what can we do to help others and to help ourselves? Yeah. I don't know, but Ali or Hani, yeah. Well, I, I, I let Ali speak. I'll speak the last one, but I have a point to respond. So, oh, I'll, 
go, go ahead. This is free for all. Go ahead. What go about ahead. My, fr my friend Ali, I want her to talk. She hasn't spoken yet. Oh, okay. Well, that's, he's throwing down the glove now here, Ali. <laughs> so, Ali, I was just going to ask you now, um, sitting on, I'm appointed citizen, sitting on the Human Rights uh, Committee Council for City of Winnipeg. Uh, yeah, and everything, and it's crazy, you know, we have the Human Rights Museum here in our backyard, and now all of this, and Melinda's saying, yeah, it's not hitting the news because it's in our everyday life. Yeah. So what have you seen and, and what is the city kind of doing about it? So, um, first of all, absolutely. There's, there's so much stuff that I've seen personally just, just through hearing from people. Um, and I couldn't agree more about what you said, Melinda, with the increase of anxiety. I mean, it just makes it a hard, it's a harder time as it is to go grocery shopping right now, even if you don't have anxiety, even if you're completely, completely okay, you walk in the store and you feel like you can cut the tension with a knife. It's, it's a really weird atmosphere. Um, but prior to the pandemic actually hitting um, Winnipeg or even hitting the globe, um, we were working in the city and I was, that's how I met Hanny and it was really, really great. Um, we were working on a policy and I can actually share the policy with you all afterwards, but it's the newcomer and inclusion policy and it's done by the city of Winnipeg. So the human rights committee in conjunction with immigration partnership, Winnipeg and a few other um, great stakeholders. We kind of met and we talked through the equity and diversity subcommittee. So we have a policy and the policy is kind of broken down into five different areas and I can read them out to you. So it's one being a welcome city, uh, a city without racism. And so what does that look like? A city without racism, right? A city without racism from a, a municipal standpoint is um, educating people, making sure that there is training done in certain workforces so that people can um, respond to people properly, making sure that there is representative people in the workplace, that we do have a representative workplace, looking at active imp implementation of these procedures too. So a city without racism, equitable and access services, making sure that there are things that are online in multiple languages, making sure that all of our 311, anything you would need to access through the service is all in multiple languages. We're even looking at things like, you know, um, Kind of a I believe it was an access pass we called it something of special pass I believe we called it some sort like that and it would be giving you kind of a foot start a jump start on getting here and making sure that you have um, a bus ticket or you have access to a gym or you have access to these things that are that are going to be there for you because it's really hard to navigate these places and a lot of these things that the city provides for us are free so with these newcomer and inclusion policy um, I think it went really well bringing it forward and of course when the word racism is involved in anything and any kind of policy it's, it's going to be a touchy subject when you're bringing it towards government officials um, but nonetheless it went through and it was passed so I would really really encourage people to look at that newcomer and inclusion policy because the fifth pillar of it is active implementation that we do need to respect and abide by all of these, all of these procedures that are within the policy itself. Um, and following that, one thing that we are looking at, um, and we have had multiple discussions on, and we're still in the works of it, is an access without fear policy. And the name itself has had a little bit of a pushback just because of the name itself being fear. Why should we have fear in Winnipeg? But I think it's very clear, and I think this conversation itself really kind of shows that that's exactly why we need to have an access without fear because there is an underlying fear that kind of has been systemic and has been 
now surfaced with all of this stuff going on. So I think right now more than ever, I am going to be pushing harder for the access without fear policy and just making sure that this is this is out there and known because one of the biggest pieces of our new and inclusion policy is education. Education is so important to make sure that people are aware and not ignorant in their in their words and in their speech. Um, so yeah, I will definitely send a link here that you guys can you guys can follow up with afterwards. But we're we're aware of it. Um, we are making sure that we celebrate days of of ending racism. That we are out there and we are making sure that we are present. That we're trying to put Winnipeg as a place for human rights on on the map. So we are actively aware of all these things and actively trying to get as much advocation as possible. We had a bunch of events planned. Of course, those are not happening because of COVID, but um, we are actively trying to work and really working with um, IPW Immigration Partnership Winnipeg has been an asset to us all. So I think the city in itself has been doing quite a bit and working on it as much as hard as we can and pushing for as much as we can. Um, but I would like to see other levels of government doing kind of the same motions. So that's what the city's doing. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a lot of work, and it's but you're right. It really needs to be done, and I can see all of these um, access plans being um, implemented in places of business. Really, it's almost like an HR thing to you know reeducate and and uh, you know start a different culture in the work workplace because people are going back to work. We can now have 25 people inside and 50 people outside. And oh, Kristen, Home Sense and Marshalls opened up. <laughs> but uh, today, later today. Um, even then, I mean, regardless of, of race or culture, I don't know if I want to go into a big, or, I guess that would be like to see 50 people together. Oh my goodness. Like we have never, we haven't even seen, all you've seen is our families, you know? And then I get to see you ladies twice a week. So that's, this has been my gathering that, um, Honey, I guess to I guess further to what uh, you want to say about um, Ali's comments, Melinda's comments, and then myself too, a little bit more on why you started um, this immigration partnership, Winnipeg. Uh, why did we start the uh, campaign? Okay, so there's one essential point I think would I'm hoping that would cover some of what what has been said. Um, so partially. Um, when you wage a campaign through a collective voice like this one, it's you send the message of empowerment. And that message of empowerment is an indirect method of supporting others. When you, when you give that emboldened type of support to people who have no voice, or otherwise their voice get muffled due to uh, racist bullying type of behavior. And those, by the way, those racist behaviors would always come up in every society so that's essential the fact that we put city free of racism is somehow utopian that's how i would put it. that we would always have racism but the level of racism is either is manageable or out of management and that's the problem is either we manage it by recreating a strong coalition through education as ali said and raising awareness of the damage that racism can create, or we will lose that what is what we call felt sense. The felt sense is an essential part in situation like this one that we live in. Felt sense is when I feel how you feel, I put myself in your shoes. 
many people in heightened situations such as ours now, they lose that felt sense ability. And for that reason, they slip into uh, an emotional dysregulation where they will start saying things as reactive, not proactive. And they lose their logic in terms of reasoning and in terms of connecting and in terms of being able to put themselves in the shoes of others. And for that reason, our campaign would send that message of empowerment for those who do not have voice. So that's again, it covers the larger why. But also through that is we going to have a, a, an avenue for people to kind of follow. And that is, listen, there is a coalition, there is a collective voice coming together to tackle uh, another type of pandemic I call, which is racism in the world. Racism is really damaging more than any virus, to be honest, that's my perspective. Um, racism can divide societies, racism can destroy families, fam racism can, can bring disasters to societies and war and conflicts. And so that's the fear of the unknown is the seed or the, 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 the fertile ground for racism. And to counter that is to create a campaign that has educational component, but also before all of that, it has the ability to welcome new partners to fight together such uh, dysregulated behavior. And so for, I think the main point of this, it would be how do we create that collective voice moving forward beyond COVID-19? Because racism is not going to stop because of uh, maybe cure or medicine can be fine for COVID-19. Uh, racism will find its way to us through, through different ways and under different masks. And for that purpose, I think this type of work that we're doing is essential type of work. Why? Because without it, we would leave the gap to widen and get bigger and bigger and create divisive society, which is exactly the opposite of what we exist for as an organization. So I will leave it at that and give people a chance to speak, but basically that's still within the large why to answer why we have this campaign. Wow. I mean, I hopefully uh, your message will get out and maybe uh, it'll spread to other places and other cities and other towns because uh, certainly what you, you and Jessica are doing is pretty amer uh, amazing. And thank you to Ali with what the city is doing. I'm going to go to Rana. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Are you sure? Are yeah. you sure you want to come to me? <laughs> no, never uh, it's all about good hair. So, yeah, you know, yes, racist. Well, yes, you yeah, know. So, so, this is the thing, you know, and I'm going to be as open as possible and as blunt as possible. And I want to really touch upon why Melinda uh, talked about that anxiety. So, first off, Canada has a history of racism. Like, full stop. Canada has a history of racism uh, against Chinese people. So, they have... Uh, you know, they used to have the head tax, they used to have the Chinese Exclusion Act, there's policies that were implemented decades and decades ago that generations and generations and generations of Chinese Canadians uh, have lived with or known someone who has lived with, and that has passed on to generation to generation to generation. So that is something that is historic, it would pass on. Um, so I think that that may be a level of why other than all the very overt reasons why somebody would have that racism, I think that internally, somebody who knows that history would also have that racism. 
you know, they would feel that, that, oh, well, like, this is almost like history repeating itself because this isn't unique to Canada. Um, you know, and I could go on, you know, for 10 hours about, uh, you know, racist policies against Indigenous peoples, racist laws against Indigenous people. I mean, we all have um, a role to play in, in our own world to to work on how to educate different groups of people. You know, I heard the word, um, you know, I think it was collaboration or uh, I, I don't I can't remember who said it, but yeah, you know, when, when you're collaborating, really it's about all different groups as well. Um, for, for the situation at hand, you know, um, I, I want to just kind of commend Susie because I think that, you know, she put forward a really honest truth. You know, we could all try to play a hero here, but what she spoke of is actually really true of what a normal person in that situation with kids would feel like uh, if somebody was dealing with a racist situation, you know, and we've all been in it, you know, um, when 9-11 happened, you know, every Muslim in the world was like, okay, well, we can't name our kids a Muslim name, we can't do this, we can't do that. Um, and that has still carried on to this day. Um, these are long, um, this isn't uh, immediate fix. This is going to take a very long time for people to hear, to heal from um, not only what they're seeing with their own eyes when they go out, you know, as, as a as a brown person, as a Chinese individual, as a Filipino person, whatever, um, but it's also going to take a very long time to to kind of shift the narrative back to this is wrong. Let's not do this because I think that with the Trump era, there's almost like kind of a free reign right now. People have this extra confidence to feel like they can actually be overtly racist so, um, and i'm not even go into the fact that hate crimes are illegal it's a criminal code offense um you know um th this is against your own laws so um there, there's a whole host of things but i but i would i would just you know i would say you know not to interrupt you but to just kind of finish my thought um i would say that um people do have unconscious biases, biases. like we, we people do it, it is just a part of life and I think that uh trying to you know be conscious of your own biases at times um is a really important self thing that we can do you know that we can do with ourselves because I think sometimes what somebody else believes is racist or offensive to someone um it's almost individual and sometimes like I find things very offensive that maybe somebody else wouldn't, you know, based on my own lens and based on my own life experience. Um, now, would I jump at somebody's throat when they did that? Mm, depends on the day, but mostly I would, but mostly I think it would be an educational back and forth. Um, and kind of what Susie said, it is, it is a, uh, you know, probing scenario where you're going to really want to probe somebody and find out where those, um, where those issues and those biases are really coming from. But, you know, I just also want to touch upon the fact that um, reporting, uh, I think that it needs to be talked about aggressively. I think that a lot of people are dealing with overtly racist issues uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, but reporting is very difficult for people. Um, where do you report? Who do you report to? What do you say? Am I over? Am I over? Um, Am I overreacting? Is, was this really racist? Was this really offensive? Was this really, you know, we all go through that self-narrative. So also uh, through any campaign, I think giving people the confidence that they can report something, that it is, it is okay to report something like that because it helps uh, 
Canada as a whole and Manitoba as a whole to figure out what is actually going on on the floor. So that's my I just want to just want to jump in too and say that it's really I was tweeting about this uh, conversation that we're having today and uh, the number one trending topic in Canada on Twitter right now is an article from the Toronto Sun's Brian Lilly who has been slamming Dr. Tam since this whole COVID-19 started happening and he's now calling for her to be fired again much like the other CPC um, MP Derek Sloan I believe is his name and um, so we have we have leaders, quote unquote, in this country who are spouting racism and dog whistles every single day. So as we sit here and try and fight and combat what these things are doing to our families and to our children, there are people in charge who make policy, who are you know vying for the leadership of this country, who do not think that every single person in this country deserves the same rights and liberties as the other people that they have. Wow, that is shocking to me in 2020 in Canada that this is happening. Now, what are we going to do about that? I don't know. Tina, do you have the answer? <laughs> you want to you want to jump in? I would love to jump in here and you know, thank you to everyone on this panel for just really insightful and interesting um, feedback and thoughts. I think, you know, my one point of intervention that I think we all kind of, you know, owe it to ourselves, our community, our family and friends is to you know stop repeating what I find is actually probably one of the most problematic phrases um, that's been associated with COVID, which is we are all in this together. Um, I think that that simply functions to um, try and level a playing ground, which you know not, there's nothing like a pandemic to show us first of all the way the class operates in society, and I think. Thankfully, that is one of the issues that's being heavily recognized, but obviously we don't all enter into the way that we experience um, COVID-19 in the same way. This is a huge part of it, but class and experiences and family supports. Um, and so I think each time that gets repeated at the end of a, you know, an end of an event or a way of gathering people together, it's simply sort of... Um, it levels it out in a way that really is problematic and I think tries to take off these major um, sort of disruptions of society that we need to really address much more clearly. And so, you know, that's my kind of starting point. And I think it also feels less, it's not as inclusive as people think it is. They, most people using it want to be inclusive. They think they're being well-meaning. We have people within the Chinese community who use it quite frequently and they're trying to position themselves saying, we are supporting everybody. Please don't see us as a separate group. We are, we are working to support Manitobans and Canadians, people on the front lines. Um, and so they're using it to try and be included. But when, I, when we see that operating, we know that it's trying to be included in kind of a mainstream discourse in society. And I think we need to say, we need to explode that and take control of um, really the differences that um, make this experience significant. But what I also think about this, and I really appreciate these ideas of thinking forward. So, you know, we all know that anti-racism work is going to be much more than the COVID moment. And I, you know, I fear that, well, this is a moment where we are a little attuned to these. We can see how people like Tam are being targeted. Um, but what we're not really thinking about is into the future where economic, you know, downturns, recessions, and depressions usually bring out racism against those who, um, you know, Canadians, Americans think are taking their jobs. Um, so that, you know, keeping an eye and thinking to, into the future of how we address these issues. And then also thinking about the complexities of our communities. Um, I look at this and I really appreciate Rana sort of bringing up the longer history of racism in Canada, in particular for the Chinese community, but also obviously the Japanese communities, a number of communities in the way that racism has been institutionalized. 
But as we look at this, we also have to think about the ways that different waves of immigration come in. And as I've been watching much of this um, and COVID in particular, what I find quite troubling is that there seems to be also a conflation of any criticism of the way that the Chinese state has um, dealt with the COVID case is being sort of responded to by others, either from within China and the diaspora, as somehow being anti-Chinese. And so the idea that you can't be critical of state policies without also being critical of a whole group of people. And I think, you know, it requires a lot of sophisticated education and asking people to parse out what these kinds of criticisms Mean? You know, are we concerned with the Chinese state handling of COVID? Do we think what they're doing is appropriate? Can we learn from anything that sort of maybe might be improved to do that criticism? Is it a criticism of all Chinese people? And how do we operate and think through this um, within our communities and broadly? And, you know, this is also about the questions of can you criticize Manitoba, Winnipeg, um, you know, Canadian actions and still be supportive of the whole community to build on these? And I think these are the big questions that we're going to be left with um, because racism has an a way of just kind of coming up through each of those cracks. And again, I think as Rana and others have said, we're in a moment where that expression is sanctioned. It seems okay to be able to say these things on an every day. And so I think, we, you know, these are all the big questions that kind of float around in my mind. And I think I'm so happy to be part of a group like this where people are tackling the issues and then it just kind of opens up, how much bigger are they going to keep getting? Oh no, how true. Um, Sorry. I, yeah, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to jump in, um, just, you know, Christina brought up a really good point, um, just to distinguish the difference between uh, state-sanctioned policies, legislation, um, you know, what they do as a government versus people of people, like uh, people who make up the world, people who make up the country. Um, you know, people get super offended when, 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 I, when I say Canada has a history of racism. You know, I'm a first generation immigrant, um, first generation Canadian. You know, I'm very thankful for my life. Uh, I, I'm super blessed. I have zero, you know, I appreciate it all and everything. But I do also have a responsibility to understand that there is a history of racism in a lot of countries. It's in a lot of countries. And it's really important for us to distinguish between state versus people. You know, people versus government sanctioned issues because a lot of people don't agree with government things and if you disagree with your government are you anti-canadian well no you're just holding them to account which we should all be doing we're in a democratic society so it's just that narrative needs to shift and frankly we need to kind of stand up against stuff like that we need to really look at our history um, and really vocalize where where these things are actually stemming from if if racism has been sanctioned for one group Tomorrow it's going to be another group. And Just because today it's not you doesn't mean it's never yeah. going to be. So to build on that, Rana, for example, um, and Nanette, maybe you can uh, chime in on this too, and anyone with kids, is that I thought I'd be the last generation to deal with racism. I didn't think that my kids would necessarily have to deal with that and with the slurs and all the things that came along with that. And if you look Asian by appearance, chances are your kids are going to hear perhaps slurs or words that they've never heard before. And now you're dealing with a whole new level of education for them because you thought that that was over and it's not. So I think that we need to have these conversations with our kids and talk about what's happening in this, in this larger conversation that we're having to make it age appropriate for whatever age your kids are. And to say, you know, here's what you might hear 
out there in your chats, in your Zooms, whatever it might be, and talk to them about what these words and what these um, dog whistles sound like and how they can combat that even at their young age. Yeah, I was going to ask Nanette, you know, how has it been with your kids and dealing with all of, uh, you know, not only COVID-19 and isolation, but also now this growing racism. I mean, it, there has been stats all over. You know, um, we've been uh, we've been very fortunate. We haven't really encountered, um, well, first of all, we're in the house. We haven't left. Um, I'm the only one who leaves the house. Um, and... But they're still connected through... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, their, their phones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my my children are very private. I guess it comes from uh, having a mom who is very tell it all <laughs> with my blog and everything. You know, they've they've sort of rebelled the exact opposite way. They've become more private, and they keep their their chat groups very much contained to their small group of friends. And that's for both of my children. And um, we've also been very fortunate that, um, you know, my my. My children uh, are involved in very multicultural, like their friend groups. It's a very mixed culture group, uh, and that's for both children as well. And um, there's, you know, uh, I think we've all seen those Facebook, um, these all, all those Facebook uh, videos of little kids who, you know, they just, oh, I, I look like my friend, and all, they're all, they're both, you know, they and their friend are wearing the same thing. And I'm talking about, re like, toddlers, like, really, really young kids who are wearing the same outfit, but they're culturally different. And they say, look, we're twins, because they don't see that. They just see their friend. And so, obviously, very much so, it is coming from parents, from what they see, from, and uh, it's unfortunate, like, I agree with Susie, like, I mean, I, why are we dealing with this now? Like, I thought, again, like, I mean, I'm uh, first generation, I'm fr um, from the Philippines, I've married outside of the Filipino community. And we've never had any, I you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking for me to see because I wouldn't know how to handle that. Because we've been very fortunate, we've had lots of love and acceptance of who we are as a family and as uh, for our, my husband and I, our, our marriage and, and everything. But it is heartbreaking to see that we are still encountering this. My children have, if they have, they haven't told me. And um, uh, they've always been very accepting of other people. And they have stepped up on many occasions to, you know, hey, you know, and defend their friends, which, which makes me very, very proud. I hear from other people about this. And, and uh, it is up to it is up to us to to educate them for sure, definitely. But I also agree with Susie in that you can't educate a person like in the in the you know in the aisle of a superstore because first of all, you know, when when people are angry, you can't educate them. They'll dig their heels in, and and it's really hard to do that in in a in a situation where everyone's emotions are inflamed yeah and uh you need to really get them in a place where you know calm them down you know get them in a in a comfortable happy place where they're more receptive and more um open to hearing logic because when you're angry there is no logic yeah. logic doesn't even step in 
Yeah. And um, I think that that's something that we really need to, to um, understand and focus on. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, um, a new awareness will come from all of this. And that's kind of what I'm hoping for as well. So, Well, I mean, we do have this, these great organizations doing great work. I'm going to throw it now over to Charlotte and, and Kirsten. <laughs> so, yeah, so you've seen the whole, the whole gamut. And, uh, you know, we're talking about mental health and, well, nothing like good old racism to get your blood boiling and, and, you know, not feeling good about yourself. But there's so many other issues here. There's the kids and, you know, and Hani and Jessica, the kids are the future, right? It's how they perceive this and move on. Um, hopefully they gain great knowledge and information to hopefully, you know, wipe out racism. Racism is not even a word anymore. I mean, that's utopia, like you said, honey, but uh, you know, looking at the mental health now and with the workforce opening up, with more things coming open, we have to go out. We have anxiety. We have, you know, being guarded. Will my, uh, you know, will my former friends want to come to my house for a glass of wine? So how do you handle all of these different emotions, ladies? I don't know. Well, you know what, Tracy, can you guys hear me okay today? Yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk about first off is um, in our peer support training that we've been doing, um, what we have going on right now and what we've done in the past, we've trained a lot of people with visible minorities to go out and do peer support work. Um, there's a common theme with the Asian peer workers that we've trained and the, um, and the Indian peer workers we've trained um, and the indigenous peer workers that we've trained is um, people from their culture don't want to come forward when they're struggling with mental health challenges. So they really go into themselves. They don't want to talk about it. And like, we're really trying to work hard at saying it's okay to talk about it. And when people come forward, um, you know, like, and start saying that they have anxiety and it just makes more people more comfortable to come forward. Um, Kirsten and I've worked with a few, um, Asian moms who have children who are struggling with anxiety and um, and to get them to come and see us in person um, one mom will only text me um, she doesn't you know she doesn't want to tell me her name she's so embarrassed that somebody in her community is going to find out that her daughter is struggling so it's these kind of conversations that Kirsten and I have continually that we really hope that um, more people can start coming forward and talking about it and just sharing that, you know, it's okay that if you have your, if you are struggling to come forward and get some help. Um, so, and Kirsten, do you want to add to that? Cause I know you've got some moms you're working with too. Yeah. Um, you know, this is such a great conversation. <laughs> I, uh, I love being part of it. Um, so many things that were said today, uh, just, just, break my heart and also hit really close to home. Um, in our peer training we do, we actually touch on biases. That's a, that's a segment that we talk about. And uh, you're right, uh, Rana, whether they're unconscious often, but they are definitely there. So to actually take a really hard look and get your own biases in check. And if someone uh, claims to have no biases, you just have to ask them, uh, cats or dogs, vanilla or chocolate? Like, let's start there. Like, we all have biases and you build on that but to, to go even deeper um, and to talk about how it starts at home Nanette was saying how uh, it starts with the parents and the family and the example that we set 
Um, you know, I know in uh, my house, it was uh, one of the most important things when my children were, were growing up was to be kind and be respectful. And one of the worst things that could have happened in my home is if the teacher called to say you were giving somebody a really hard time and being unkind. Um, you know, that, that grew to become a situation where, um, you know, I was sitting in emergency with my daughter uh, who wasn't well at the time and there was a, a visible minority who was being mistreated by a security guard that was way out of line. And, you know, my, my daughters are elbowing me going, okay, mom, like you're on, like, what are you going to do? And, and that's the expectation that we need to set. And the campaign mm -hmm. that is so fantastic, um, the theme I'm seeing is it's really targeting the allies and it's the allies that need to get a little shake up and say, hey, you're on, it's time. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's take action. Let's, let's, let's have a plan. Um, I could go on and on. I don't want to take up too much time, but um, you know, and the moms that, continue to isolate because they have shame that there's um, a mental health struggle in their family. Well, what you're doing is you're setting the stage for uh, more isolation and more shame, more anxiety. And it, it's just a, a rabbit hole you're, you're going down with your daughter. So to be able to um, own your story and talk about it on your terms, um, it's, it's going to manage that shame and it's going to empower you and empower the daughter and the children that you're trying to raise. Um, but all fantastic conversation. Uh, yes. It gets my, my blood boiling and uh, thank you for letting us be a part of this. But because um, yeah. I and could go on and on. <laughs> and I was just going to add one more point. Um, I grew up in uh, the aftermath of Martin Luther King being assassinated. I grew up in Memphis. So as a child, I have very vivid memories of um, what it was like to grow up in a city of huge discourse between white people and black people. And I made a conscious decision to move to Canada when I was 18 because I felt that this was a country that that suited me, me more and it had a lot to do around racism. So this breaks my heart, this conversation. Um, and I worked very hard at raising my daughters um, to have you know, friends, didn't matter where they were from or socioeconomic, anything, just they're your friends. Um, but I, I do truly believe that there's some great organizations in our city that have been dealing with racism. Um, I have cousins who are Jewish and you know, there's hate crimes against Jewish. I have friends who are in the indigenous community and they have theirs. And I'm just really hoping that you guys are all including all these groups that have been working against racism for years and taking their history and, and, and not siloing this. Um, because I think if all of us work together, and, and I am going to say that in this, you know, I think we can, we can make a difference. And it's not turning a blind eye when you see it, um, but really, um, like, you know, like Susie said, support the victim. Um, and not get harmed, but you know, do what you can to to not let it feel like it. The person who is saying it is get can get away with it. And if I can add something to that, um, Charlotte and Kirsten, um, one of the things um, the, the word that I really love um, came out of an article that I read on Twitter a couple of years ago, and I don't ever identify as an ally per se. I love the word co-conspirator. Instead, instead, and what that means is that I'm not just going to stand there and you know hold the flag for you and say, "Yeah, I support you." I'm actually going to get dirty with you. I'm actually going to roll my sleeves up. I'm actually going to entrench myself in whatever it is that you need me to do to get to whatever level you need to be at. So what that means is that if you see um, an 
incident happened, a potentially violent incident happened, okay, against an Asian person, and I, as a visually Asian-looking person, am also trying to help diffuse that situation, I need someone who looks like you, Kirsten, or who looks like you, Charlotte, to use that privilege to help me out of that situation as well, because I can't do it alone yeah. in that situation. And that's unfortunate, but I do need to call upon our, you know, our other sisters and our other allies to not just be allies, but to be co-conspirators. And that means you need to help me flip the tables so that we can help everybody and lift everybody out of this oppression. And that's the only way that we're going to get this done, is that when we all side together, and when you ask me with your privilege behind you and say, what is it that you need me to do to support you to help get this done? That's how we're going to flip tables. Uh, yes. <laughs> Tracy, if I may say something uh, with respect to a few points that have been raised, uh, of, of course, we just about we agree with every every comment or opinion being expressed so far about this. Um, but I think there are essential points. There are facts on the ground, and the fact is, number one, racism has been with us since I don't know recorded history and is going to be continuing. Again, I'm repeating the same thing. It's, it's just how we react to it. That's number one. Number two, in terms of mental health and the stress that racism can create, specifically during COVID-19, and that's why we react in the way we react now in terms of our organization work. Um, I'll give you an example of what we have done in terms of tangible, concrete steps that we took so far. So there's uh, a newly established council called the Ethnocultural Council of Manitoba. It consists of 20 or so ethnic groups or community, ethno-community organizations. They came together and we have this council that as an unbarreled organization. Um, if you hear me throw in a few words that has to do with therapy and all that because I have training in this area, so forgive me if I'm leaning towards mental health more than the racism part of it, but because it is connected. I must say that we chose mental health subjects to be the theme to be discussed among the ethnocultural communities when came together. Over 50 people showed up on Zoom and they discussed what it matters to them and what, how they felt before COVID-19, during COVID-19, um, about their families, about their children, their, their collective voice and what that means and going forward. So we have done that so far. And we have done also identified certain segments within the ethnocultural communities. And to be specific, single mothers with children, dependent age children, let's say seven and under, who are stuck and confined in apartment buildings and they do not have access to the outside world. And if they do, is very limited. And for that reason and that purpose, we created, we try, we're working on an initiative to create a group of single mothers coming together so they can hear, hear each other, empower each other, and learn from each other as to how to cope. But it is through guided, um, guided discussion. So that's number two. In terms of youth, because I hear people saying that, how do we deal with these situations? In terms of youth, um, we have, I think Jessica can speak more to that, but we do have few initiatives around youth and, and during COVID-19. Going back to 2017, when the refugee claimants or the people who are trying to cross the border coming into Manitoba, I remember was sitting on a working group trying to develop a kit to deal with that situation. 
And by that situation, I mean there are in the rural areas there were some voices coming from certain members of the rural communities where they had concerned over the people who cross on the border and the way they look and the way they this and that. And so it's kind of, I would say, um, uh, it's a little hidden racism based on ignorance and fear. And so we went and we created a kit. I can't remember the name of it. I think a bread and border. You can look it up. It's on our website. And that's a whole kit that you can train. You can take it to cafe, conversation cafe, and you sit with them. You go to the people who have concerns. You sit with them. As you said, you need a safe place where these subjects to be discussed. Again, those people who have those um, racist or racist be uh, racism or racist behaviors are mainly ignorant, uh, driven by ignorance or fear. So you need to break through that fear and have a meaningful discussion and reach out to them. And we have done it in the past. And I think another component of our campaign would cover that going forward. And I need to remind ourselves that integration, the word integration that we use in our work is a two-way traffic, two-way pathway, uh, two-way uh, kind of a process. We, the, the people from the visible minorities or the ethnic groups, we need to look into our, within ourselves to, to see about the racism and the discrimination that we may have towards others because it's a, we, we're part of the larger society except that racism that comes from dominant or larger system, it's more hurtful. So these are all components coming together. I think there's laws to think about and laws to break down into smaller pieces. But nevertheless, racism will continue, but we need to continue fighting it. Yes, well, um, I, and I just maybe to Jessica, how can, how can we help? How can we help um, Hani and and all of, his, all of his endeavors. I mean, you know, we can, I would definitely want to have both of you back, you know, when you're in your second phase of things and invite everybody back here to see just how well we're doing because June 1st, right, or as of today, we're going to hear a phase two. And uh, basically everything's opening except for bars, uh, gyms, and casinos. So what's left after that are arenas. <laughs> and, you know, it's a whole other ball of wax, like one lady said, so are you gonna run out your front door and run the marathon? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, how can we help us So just first of all, this conversation has been extremely helpful. I think um, because we're just starting off this campaign and we're developing new activities, it's really getting um, Hanny and I's minds rolling of uh, other type of resources like uh, co-conspirator uh, co resource um, that's definitely needed. Um, also some work around youth. And we've had, um, we've actually heard from youth in the community that they too have um, in their own friend groups have seen racist memes and comments going up and have asked like, what do we do? Um, so these type of conversations are really helpful for us. Uh, where we can use some help is like really promoting our campaign, um, uh, sharing sharing our posters and trying to get them up. Because if we can have our posters up in businesses, grocery stores, and people are reminded that don't, don't be racist, <laughs> um, that will help kind of get our message across. Okay. Um, and if any other ideas pop up um, or if you hear of incidents, um, please feel free to reach out and let us know. Also, there's a, a national incident reporting uh, form that the 
the uh, Chinese Canadian National Council has put forth. So if in your if in your communities you're hearing about uh, people that have experienced these incidents, please encourage them to go report it so we can have have a collective database and know how to better plan collective action around what's taking place. So can you put down in the chat group your website, any links, your social media links for all of that? Because that was one of my questions now. Who, who can we go to? But that's great for the incident. Connie, do you want to wrap up? Or I just want to say, I think this gathering is an invitation for us to continue the work we do. However, I am also trying to be concrete in terms of my thinking and being tangibly useful in terms of going forward with this campaign. Uh, we will have working groups, we will have coalition, and by coalition, by the way, people who can get their hands dirty and doing the work that we expect them to do. It's an invitation to everyone who is interested to reach out and see how they fit and where they fit, depending on their expertise. Um, also, they can convey the voices that come from their respective community. Um, we all have tales and narratives to, to, to share with others, and I think it would be useful a platform going forward this campaign that would go over three years. So it's not just, yes, COVID-19 is the focus, but we have way longer and bigger projects to look after. Jessica is the person to connect with. I feel free to connect with me as well. Um, I'll share whatever I know. And I thank you again, Tracy, for this opportunity. I'm very pleased to meet all of you. And hopefully we'll, uh, we will uh, have the chance to meet with you in different setting and hopefully we'll discuss good objectives also, we have sector tables, sector tables that is part of our organization structure. Um, I'm inviting whoever is interested to explore them and see how they contribute to that. And the sector tables, if we can explain it if we have time some other time, but basically it's an invitation, it's an open invitation to every member. And thank you very much again. Oh, well, thank you, Ronnie. Well, I think you'll be hearing from a lot of us. I, I know that. Uh, at least we want to keep informed and I think this is a great platform to start. Um, Tina, do you have anything that you want to say before? And everybody is welcome to these chats. So Jessica, honey, okay, so every Tuesday and Thursday until we're released from our cages or whatever you, you want to call it. Um, Allie, do you want to share anything? Um, I really just want to kind of run with the one thing that Tina said was the, the saying of we're in this together. Oh, I just really want to, I think it's a really good time to bring up systemic racism and to say that this is actually, it's, we're not actually all in it together. We're not, it's not a thing that we all do together. We're not holding hands and we're not collectively doing it. And there's a reason why, and it is systemic. And I think for myself, you know, I have younger sisters, nine and 12 years old, when there's these kind of sayings, I think these kind of nice band-aid sugar-coated sayings and catchphrases, it is a good time to spark some discourse. It is a good opportunity to say, let's kind of unpack what we're all in this together means because it's really, um, it's really paying a disservice to an intersectional approach to looking at how we're handling COVID-19. We're not looking at class status. We're not looking at gender. We're not looking at all these things that are included in it, right? So just maybe when we get a chance or we hear that one thing or we hear a kid say it at that point, I just think it's a really, really nice time to chime in and, and then we can start educating our youth a little bit in that area as well. Well, but maybe we can go we and then cross out all and just write actually not in this together <laughs> all right 
Well, thank you so much, ladies, and thank you, honey, for joining us. And uh, definitely, okay. yes. Can I just can I just say one thing before you go? Because I know everyone's going back to work, and I don't know if we're um, just um, so. You know, it's my job, so I should probably talk about quickly. Uh, if you're going back to work, uh, and if you're a federally regulated uh, industry, uh, you have the Canadian Human Rights um, Commission to make a complaint for. Uh, at if you are dealing with racism in your workplace in some way or some kind of discrimination. Uh, if you are a provincial, provincially regulated industry, which is the majority of um, um, work, uh, and if you're, you know, of some minority group and you're feeling some type of discrimination within your work organization, uh, make sure to file those complaints. That is your route. That is your way to get um, to get heard. Um, and uh, they should not, there's... They, they shouldn't be able to retaliate against you, even if you tell them that you're filing that complaint. Just, I guess what I'm trying to say is know what the rules are, know what the laws are, know what your rights are. Okay. And it's ended on that because everyone's going to go back to work and we don't know how people are going to feel once they're there. Well, that's going to be a whole different situation. So we'll have that conversation soon. All right. Well, enjoy your weekend. How safely and healthily you can and uh, we'll see you back here on tuesday tuesday it's all about inclusion and there's some special training courses coming up yes and then on thursday we'll have a special guest all the way from bogota colombia she's actually an ex winnipegger and uh and she moved to colombia before the covid uh, 19 broke out and she's going to tell us all about living there and that's cynthia some of our cute ladies will remember cynthia and we should maybe have Shandy. I would love to have Shandy on too, Kirsten. So it'll be an interesting conversation, you know, in that whole community and everything like that. So, yeah. So totally invite you back. Okay. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of iLikeQ.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.